Burn it all down. Burn it all down, Lucy. <laughs> Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. And we have a really fun panel today because, you know, Mike and Lucy, returning to the roundup first is senior advisor at the California Latino Economic Institute, a fellow co-founder and advisor to the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at USC, our good friend Mike Madrid. Mike, good morning. What'd you have for breakfast? I had numbers, numbers, numbers. It's great to be back with you guys. Love this crew, so I'm looking forward to today's talk. Good to see you, Mike. And of course, returning to the roundup, the inimitable Lucy Caldwell. Lucy is a veteran political strategist, tech founder, former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Lucy, thank you for stepping in and hosting for me last week. It was remarkable, really fun to listen to when I'm not on the roundup. It's great to see you. It's hard to live up to Ron, as <laughs> the listeners know. So thank you. Great to be with you and great to be on this side of the panel. It's an easier job. All right. I'm super excited to dive in to the discussion with you both today. But first, I want to make a quick announcement that our State of the Vote episodes are back. Every Tuesday from now until the midterms, Politicology has teamed up with our friends at Decision Desk HQ. They are the mathletes who power election night results coverage and final calls on races for major outlets like The Economist and Insider and The New York Times. We're going to break down the movement in polling data, what races it's impacting, and what's driving it. And we're going to do all of that in 20 minutes. This week, we talked about the tightening of the Nevada Senate race and how important that election could be for the balance of power in the Senate. We also talked about the movement in House races and probably most importantly, how to read the win probability ratings that data scientists use. That episode is out now. Just look for the State of the Vote episode that dropped on Tuesday on the Politicology feed. Also, when we get to the end of today's roundup, we'll have a teaser of that and what you can expect to get every Tuesday. On this week's roundup... First, we will break down the recently released Congressional Republicans' so-called Commitment to America plan as we head into the midterms. Why now and what Kevin McCarthy might be up to. Next up, we'll look around the map at the big lie candidates running for Secretary of State, the activists swarming elections offices with challenges and how these stories might impact the fight for democracy. And then, brace yourself, Mitch McConnell has endorsed the Senate's Electoral Count Reform Act. We'll dig into that. Then, finally, we'll discuss the Russians fleeing Putin's draft and the consequences of the apparent sabotage of the Nord Stream pipelines. But wait, there's more for our Politicology Plus subscribers only. (laughs) We're going to talk about Hurricane Ian as a leadership test for Ron DeSantis, who is, of course, likely gearing up for the 2024 presidential primary. If you want to join us for that and a lot more, a Politicology Plus subscription gets you into our private ad-free version of this podcast, where we also drop additional strategy and analysis not available on the public show. There are two ways you can get it. If you're listening to us in the Apple Podcasts app, you can navigate to the Politicology Show and tap the button that says Try Free, or you can sign up directly with us at politicology.com slash plus. And by the way, we just made some big updates. And while everybody else is raising prices because of inflation, we just went the other way and dropped the price of the annual plan by more than half. So if you've been waiting to pull the trigger, now is a great time. We'll dig in right after this. All right. So last week, Kevin McCarthy unveiled his commitment to America agenda. 
Uh, McCarthy's plan was a play on the 1994 contract with America. Some listeners will remember that. Some listeners might not have been alive. That outlined the (laughs) Republicans' campaign promises and their agenda for when they took control of the House. So the McCarthy plan includes, um, we'll call them slogans, like fight inflation and lower the cost of living, make America energy independent and reduce gas prices, strengthen supply chains, achieve longer, healthier lives for Americans. Um, Karen Tumulty at the Washington Post described the commitment to America as a one-page list of slogans. Uh, Tucker Carlson told his Fox News audience that there's, uh, quote, nothing real in it. I can't do a Tucker Carlson impression unless I eat a jar of mayonnaise first so I can get the facial expression just right. Uh, Why do you have to be that way toward mayonnaise? <laughs> what do you have against mayonnaise? What he looks like constantly is like, ugh. Uh, you, you know, okay. So you both looked at this, uh, the, the commitment to America agenda. Um, Mike, you've known Kevin for a long time, so uh, I want to start with Lucy. Yeah. <laughs> while slogans, while slogans only they may be, um, they sound pretty good. <laughs> Lucy, they sound pretty good at the surface. So, what's he doing here? Who's he trying to convince? Is there any real policy here? Does policy even matter? Yeah, I mean, Tucker said there's nothing in this, and that's that's a feature, not a bug. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, it seems to me that Kevin McCarthy is trying to move uh, the his audience, the base, the MAGA base, the MAGA curious, the Republican base and would-be Republican base writ, writ large off of kind of infighting and um, conflict around the election, around, um, you know, kind of the hottest button issues that aren't working for them in favor of a forward-facing vision of what America can be under a Republican majority. And he's clearly trying to do this in a way where he has, he's he's not doing it by ignoring um, the fringe people in his party. He's actually doing it by, by bringing them into the fold and kind of saying, you're going to be a part of this. I mean, he had Marjorie Taylor Greene on stage with him in Pennsylvania on, on roll, you know, rolling this out. And so I think that the the lack of specificity, you know, the, everyone always goes to the Newt days, right, of the contract with America, which was very specific and and structural. Um, we're in a different time now, and I think he's trying to lay out a vision that really aligns the Republican Party as the party of a a party of. Um, we're taking care of you, individual liberty, yet also, uh, you know, a government that's accountable to you, a country that's safe, and just try to squeeze people into a new vision for the future republicanism. Will it work? No idea. Mike may know, but that's the 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 lack of specifics. I would say is a feature, not a bug. Definitely a feature, not a bug. Because if you were to just, you know, take 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 the Republican brand off of this, take McCarthy's name off of this, poll a bunch of Americans and sort of blind do a blind taste test, everybody's going to love this stuff. It's yeah, most, I mean, everybody's going to say, "Oh yeah, I want all of that." The question is like, okay, but how are you going to do it? So, Mike, you uh, you know, Kevin, uh, like, first of all, I'm curious what how you would contrast, compare, contrast these two, you know, things. Newt Gingrich's contract with America whether Kevin is, you know, actually trying to do that again here, whether it might work. Um, but why now, right? If, if, if it's true that 
you know, policy doesn't really matter in campaigns and we're now in the final stretch toward the midterms. Why do this now? It's a great question and they're absolutely related. So let me do a little bit of you know, armchair psychology with, with yeah. Kevin, uh, who's only a couple of years older than I am. He sits in his you know, mid-50s. Uh, in 1994, Kevin McCarthy was a chief staffer for Congressman Bill Thomas, who was very influential in the leadership. And um, the, you have to remember, in 1994, um, a lot of us as younger Republicans were on the verge of something that had never happened in most people's political careers, and that was Republicans were ready, were about to take over the majority in Washington, D.C., in the Congress for the first time in 40 years. It's kind of hard now to, to remember that, that with Congress bouncing back and forth so frequently in our lifetimes now, in our adult lifetimes, that for, there was 40 years between 1954 and 1994 where there was no change. The Democrats basically owned the House of Representatives. So when Gingrich came out with the Contract of America, it was a, it was a very defining moment in republicanism, not just as an ideology, but as a tactic. And it was it was led largely by a younger pollster by the name of Frank Luntz. And Frank Luntz really made his his bones in Republican politics by this concept of saying, let's delineate 10 items that will we can tell the American people we are going to support. Now, most of these items had 65, 75, 80% support uh, amongst the American public. So it was very easy to define conservatism in a way that was contrasting with the Democrats who were then in power. And it, it was wildly successful. This is the Republican Revolution of 1994, and the whole world changes. At that time, you know, I, I can't underscore how much Kevin McCarthy really, really breathed in this tactic as a successful way of defining a majority. And remember, the contract with America was announced about 40 days before the election of 1994. It was used to frame the entire debate of that election cycle. It was very effective. Now, a, a, a couple couple of things have happened since then. First, uh, you know, Kevin McCarthy and Frank Luntz ultimately became roommates in Washington D.C. Oh wow! They, they became very, very good close friends, and the articulation of this agenda and these tactics became a big part of what the contract with America and and and, and the use of this device um, has become. There's no question in my mind that as as Kevin McCarthy is seeing himself becoming speaker, he wants to emulate that same successful tactic. One major problem. There is no underlying ideology in the Republican Party anymore. It can't articulate 10 issues that enjoy 75, 80% of the public support the way that we could in 1994. And as a result, all you're left with is unicorns and rainbows, right? Everybody yeah. wants everybody wants everybody this wants yeah. the stuff, but it's it's <laughs> it's so nebulous that it's meaningless. There's nothing in it. Tucker Carlson is exactly right. There's no articulation of what it is. And if you follow the right wing media and you watch what it is that they talk about, it's overwhelmingly cultural issues. N nothing in the 1994 contract with America was cultural. It was all fiscal responsibility by and large. There was some law and order stuff in there, but there was nothing cultural. All the Republican Party is is a culture, you know, army of cultural warriors. So unless you're going to put like eliminate pronouns, right, or get rid of critical race theory and do all of these things that are essentially 
firing up just the base but limited to what the rest of the American public want, you've got nothing to say. There's nothing the Republicans can credibly say right now in a contract with America-style device. They've got no credibility on debt. They've got no credibility on taxes. They've got no credibility in, in, in foreign policy. Like all of that was blown up in the Trump era. So what you're left with is rainbows and unicorns. And that's what they're trying to sell. And and I, it, it's just not going to work the way it was in 1994. But it is it's somebody who's known Kevin, who's watched his career to, and understands why he's doing this. There's something a little sad about it. There's something a little bit kind of pathetic about it. I, I do still believe Republicans will get a majority in the House, but it's not going to be because of this contract with America 2.0. Because we're not in we're not in 1994 anymore, Toto. Go ahead. Well, Go the ahead. other sad thing about it that Mike can't say because he knows the guy, but is Kevin McCarthy is also a, a dum dum. So there's that. <laughs> but or as Lene, as Lene would call him, insurrectionist speaker Kevin McCarthy. Go ahead. He, he's I'm sorry, he's not even clever enough to I be know. insurrectionist. Like this is the guy who was <laughs> sorting candy for Donald Trump and like taking like sorting Starbursts or something to take the kind of candy that the president liked. But he does come from that legacy of conservatism then. And even as recently as 10 years ago, there was an idea among, I mean, let's back up for a second. Contract with America, super structure. Like I just, I just pulled it up. These were some of the things. It was like, um, uh, select a major independent auditing firm to conduct, conduct a comprehensive audit of Congress for waste, fraud, or abuse. Like cut the number of house committees, cut committee staff by one third, right? Ban the casting of proxy votes, right? Uh, require a three-fifths majority vote to pass a tax increase. You know, uh, guarantee an honest accounting of our federal budget by implementing zero line base zero baseline budgeting. These are very a lot of very specific, specific things. Very specific. They're very structural. Anti-Congress, mm-hmm. by the way. Yes, yeah. and anti-big and, government. Anti-big government, and in in even as recently as ten years ago, but in the early and mid two thousands, there was early. There, there was still this idea, I think, if you were on the right, that you were absolutely 100% right on all policy ideas, but that if you were losing, it was because you were losing hearts and minds, right? Mm-hmm. That that you were failing to connect with people about how they feel emotionally and that that is what Democrats were doing really well and that all we had was connecting with people based on kind of like a, an appeal to um pragmatic policy principles. And I'm not trying to relitigate whether those were the right principles or not. I will just say that I think then a movement got afoot to figure out how to win the hearts and minds of people. And somewhere along the way, I'm for sure going to get a lot of flack for saying this, but somewhere along the way in the, in the, in the, uh, effort to win people's hearts and minds kind of threw out rigorous policy (laughs) completely. And that's why you can see someone like Kevin McCarthy, who did come up in that tradition, is trying to hang on and see what is palatable. There's a, a, a some there are some Republicans who still call me amazingly. I don't know why, <laughs> right? They'll call me and be like, can you help Chuck Grassley find a fundraiser? It's like, do you, what? <laughs> anyway, one of them called me, one of them who's close to Kevin McCarthy called me some months ago, and I suspect has been involved in this. And he's probably going to stop calling me after I share this anecdote, but that's fine. Uh, but burn it all down, burn it all down, <laughs> totally. burn it all down, totally. Lucy. It's <laughs> a so former, former RNC political director who behind the scenes has been very involved. <laughs> yeah, I'm burning it all down on this episode, has been very involved, you know, didn't like the direction of the Republican Party and, and put forward an idea to me 
that really what was needed was a hearkening back to the contract with America kind of era, that that's how you activate the base. That's how you get people excited. You know, I obviously was not invited to, to sit at the table while this document, this new commitment to America was written. But I suspect that a lot of it was people who come from that era, who still see the Republican Party as their vehicle, getting into a room together and saying, okay, well, how about we talk about um, uh, low taxes, right? Like entrepreneurship, cutting red tape for, and that as they went through, it was like a fight between old and new. And the new people were like, how about we say something about being safe? <laughs> like, right? And that's how you go from contract with America in 1994 to this watered down mm. commitment to America in the year 2022. You know, that reminds me, Tumulty argued uh, that part of why there aren't any laid out plans in the proposals that Republicans are divided among themselves on issues, yes. right? There's not a lot of, there's not a lot of cohesion and notably abortion uh, to her. Like, and we can all remember like the hand wringing that happened after Lindsey Graham's uh, stunt, the internal hand wringing, right? Um, so Mike, what do you make of that argument that, you know, that, uh, is there any real need for Republicans to give specific policy proposals at this point? And, and, like to the extent that they're divided, you know, why draw attention to that? I, I look. I do think at some point a party has to stand for something. Okay. I mean, I, I, I maybe I'm old school that way, but well, uh, they used to. Well, it did. Anyway. Well, that, that was the point I was going to make. Is re- regardless of how you felt about it, the Republican Party in the mid 1990s was a true, genuine battle of ideas. It was a battle about the direction of government, and I think it had been out of power for so long that it really had to hone the arguments. And there was an intellectual movement. I mean, some of the greatest intellectuals of from the '60s through the '80s were conservative thinkers. That's just just part of it. You can you can debate whether or not they were horrible human beings or good people or whatever, but there was an intellectual basis. There was a rationale for what we were trying to do to make a better country. That is not the case anymore. Like as I've said before, the intellectual movement in the Republican Party now is diamond and silk, right? It's like that's not – it's become a cartoon. It's become a caricature of, of a party, and the reason why is because there is no intellectual underpinning anymore. There is no philosophical agreement. It's not, it's not even that there's a, a, a disagreement on policy. There's not even a philosophical agreement anymore where the Kevin McCarthy's who came in the establishment age were arguing for 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 smaller government, for you know, less regulation, for free markets and in a capitalist society. Today, Trumpism is statism. It's basically an argument for stronger government as long as it advance, advances my agenda. Those are completely incompatible ideas in the Republican caucus today. And like I said, most of the most of the old Reaganites and the and the old, you know, old school Republicans that liked those ideas, we are a s- small sliver of the party and Kevin McCarthy is one of those, which is why he is neither trusted by the Freedom Caucus. Remember, he couldn't put together the votes for speaker last time. Paul Ryan was the default candidate. He was plan B. Nor is he trusted by the QAnon caucus, which is going to get bigger this election cycle, right? The Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Lauren Boberts, the you know all of the the, the 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 this group is not going away. It's getting bigger, and they don't like Kevin, which is why Tucker clearly Tucker Carlson does not like Kevin McCarthy. Like that is clear. And how he becomes speaker with Fox News against him is going to be a real fascinating fight to watch uh, after after the you know the November midterms. So look, at some point I have have to believe only because it's all I've ever known is a political party has to be actually 
a debate of a philosophy of government. That is literally what a political party is. That's no longer what the Republican Party is. It's why it's more of a cult than a party, right? The only thing, the only thing that you cannot be violent of in the Republican Party is your loyalty to Donald Trump, your fealty to the party. That's a cult. That's not that's not a, a political party in a healthy democracy. That's what we have right now. I'm hoping that that swamp fever breaks. We haven't seen a whole lot, you know, a lot of evidence that that is going on, but but at some point I I do believe it will get back to that point. If not as a Republican party as something else, but that that that's going to have to fill the void. On Tuesday, the Senate bill reforming the Electoral Count Act advanced out of committee by a wide margin, 14 to 1. Guess who that one was? The bill even has Mitch McConnell on board. So he said he, uh, he, he said the chaos on January 6th, quote unquote, chaos on January 6th, quote, underscored the need for an update. Uh, you think? Even Cindy Hyde-Smith, uh, senator from Mississippi, who voted to decertify Pennsylvania and Arizona's electors voted for the bill. Ted Cruz was the lone vote against the bill, saying it, quote, decreases the ability of Congress to address instances of fraud. Uh, so this bill is different from the Cheney-Lofgren bill that passed the House last week. That's the one, uh, Lucy, you and Lene and James talked about on the, on the roundup last week. Uh, the biggest difference here is in the percentage of members who need to object to a state's electors. So the House bill would require a third of the members of both of the House and Senate to object, while the Senate bill, this version we're talking about, would require uh, only one-fifth of both chambers. So the Senate bill has 11 Republicans uh, on board, which is one more than you need to break a filibuster. That's if all the Democrats vote for it. Um, I don't know uh, what the vote count is on the Democratic side. I would assume that they're all on board, but maybe we shouldn't assume that. I don't know. Uh, Susan Collins, who led the bipartisan group that drafted the Senate bill, along with Joe Manchin, said she spoke to Liz Cheney last week and uh, said, it's clear to me that our bill has broader bipartisan support, but I'm sure we can work with them. So the final vote in the Senate is not likely to come until after the midterms. Uh, Collins said her goal is to have the bill passed by the end of the year, and in particular, before the presidential campaigns start up next year, is what she said. So uh, this is one of those things I've been waiting for, screaming from the mountaintops, like, please, please, please get this done, because there's plenty of agreement on, you know, patching this particular gaping hole in uh, in, in democracy. Um it looks like they're finally inching their way towards it. They're not going to have it done before the midterms. Um, Mike, how important do you see this reform getting past this Congress? Well, I think it's I think it's really important because I do think that we are potentially heading towards a fiasco in 2024. Um, perhaps more importantly for today, I think this is a sign of the outward battle, the struggle between the McConnell. Uh, faction of the party and, and Donald Trump, that which is, which was behind the scenes for most of the past couple of years. It's 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 bubbled up onto the surface a few times. Now it's just Donald Trump going after the old crow directly, right? And I say the old crow because that's what Donald Trump calls him, right? It, it, it's the name calling. It's it's outwardly saying McConnell needs to be replaced. Donald Trump has made a direct threat and attack on his leadership. Uh, it's going to be fascinating to see if McConnell can, uh, you know, maintain control the way he has masterfully um, throughout the course of his tenure um, by by using the establishment, by using lobbying firms and consultants and the Republican 
voices in his caucus to 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 hold that back. Um, most of the the dirty work done by McConnell has always been done behind the scenes. He's he's an operator in that Washington style. He is not equipped to take on Donald Trump directly. The, the, the reason why this bill is passing, the reason why this bill is moving, the reason why this bill was brought up in the first place is is about Donald Trump. I mean, let's make no bones about it. This this might as well be called the anti-Donald Trump. Bill. Yeah, that, that's yeah. what this is. Yeah. And so to see, and that's why that's why Cruz votes the way he did, right? Is he's he's putting his markers, he's he's putting his chips where he thinks the party's at, and he's probably right. And so this is a really a direct assault, a direct affront structurally at Donald Trump. It's not going to get a whole lot of attention beyond a little bit of chatter for the next week or so, but it is quite significant for two reasons. One, the reasons that you've outlined is it could head off a fiasco in 2024, but perhaps I would argue more importantly is this is a really, really significant step by McConnell to to gut the guy, to draw and quarter him. Um, and and it's it's a it's a it's a an outward statement that he is going to fight back. Like we're fight we're at war. This is a war, and one of us is going to win. One of us is going to lose. More than two years away now, twenty twenty four, I should say. So much can happen between now and then, and we just we simply don't know how that presidential campaign is going to shake out. And so, why would you wait any longer if you to 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 get this thing across the finish line when you know that they're already they're already planning for. Uh, multiple ways to overturn the results of elections. Lucy, the thing I wonder about is if they don't get this done before the midterm, whether there's some danger of movement among Republicans once we hit the lame duck session, right? Um, how do you how do you see that? Well, I guess I come at this from a little bit of a different perspective, which is that I think this is much less helpful than people think. Sorry, bad okay. news. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I'm not the only one. I mean, Mark Elias, who's a well-known Democratic um, election attorney, has talked about some of the the challenges in this bill. Um, one of them is that it seems like there's a, a a mechanism, and the bill could change between now and and when it gets voted on, if it gets voted on. I also think it remains to be seen whether this bill makes it through. But it. I, I think there's a there's some question around some of the provisions of the bill, including language that would make it the role of I mean or sustain the role of a of a governor. So that could be a Carrie Lake in Arizona, a Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania. You know, you name it. A Tudor Dixon if she prevailed over Gretchen Whitman, Whitmer in uh, Michigan a Tim Michaels in Wisconsin that would essentially treat the ascertainment of of who is declared the winner that that becomes the the anchor right so even though you then go into this thing with a three judge panel and you can go on Susan Collins's website and <laughs> read the bill is it enough is it enough to does this bill actually help us to prevent chaos and i'm not sure it does another problem with the bill and and by the way, I think there are very likely to be legal challenges over this bill that may make it um, just because of federalism, that inconvenient thing. Um, but another provision of the bill that I think is is concerning, and I don't know how to fix it, but this is why I've never been a rah-rah Electoral Count Act is, is our savior uh, kind of gal, is that in the bill, it's it's about, it, it basically says in in no uncertain terms, the rules of the road for the election on election day are the rules that you have to 
that you have to kind of live by when you're deciding whether to certify the election or not as a state legislature. Well, we know that doesn't deter crazy nut job Republican state legislators either, because in many states, they have already introduced bills that would take all of the power away from voters in selecting their electors in a presidential race, which functionally means that you the 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 election, you going to vote on whether you want Joe Biden or Donald Trump as president is kind of like if bills like that get passed, like a like a fun rehearsal, <laughs> <laughs> like a fun kids vote election, yeah. and then it just moves to the hands of the legislatures. Now, is is it politically prudent for those state legislators to pass bills like that? Will they get them through? Probably not. But I just, I guess I, I want to caution. I think it's good to reform the Electoral Count Act. I just want to caution about being overly enthusiastic about, about what this means. This does not mean our problems are solved. And once again, beating a dead horse here, but I'm pretty clear in my mind, and I hope everyone listening is too, that these big federal bills are not they going to solve the problem it. of yeah, the rise right, of authoritarians right. who are busy penetrating every level of local government while yeah. Democrats are like, oh my God, got to get through federal voting rights. Let's do both. <laughs> yeah, let's do both. Okay, so to the extent that I am enthusiastic about this, it's because of a let's do both. A, it's something. Yeah, it's actually something. It's a good that thing is to anchor in the to. right direction, right? Yes. And 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 while it certainly is not a, it's nowhere close to a panacea. It's plugging a few keyholes if it, it if it withstands legal scrutiny. But one of those is making sure that you do, you can't have fraudulent slates of electors submitted to. Uh, to 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 be certified, like it, it cuts off multiple routes to uh, of, to fuckery, and uh, it would it reaches Congress. So, uh, yeah, but you, Lucy's one hundred percent right that where where the work really needs to be done is at the state legislative level. Uh, that's where the that's where the you know the outsized vulnerabilities are. Um, so we should talk about that a little bit more. What's happening at the state level? So while Congress right might be getting closer to the finish line on this piece. Uh, on Wednesday, the New York Times reported that activists uh, who are driven by false claims of election fraud, and these are not, by the way, the precinct strategy activists. These are just citizen groups. We've talked about the ban in precinct strategy trying to get you know election deniers into top posts. This is different. These activists have been working to toss out tens of thousands of voter registrations in battleground states. Uh, in Georgia, uh, they've challenged at least 65,000 voter registrations uh, on the basis of uh, voters' addresses not being correct. In Michigan, they've challenged about 22,000 um, uh, ballots from voters who requested absentee ballots in the August primary. Uh, in Harris County, Texas, there have been 116 affidavits challenging the eligibility of more than 6,000 voters. Everybody knows Harris County, Texas. Uh, Houston. Yeah, Houston. Um the, so the increase in challenges has created right this time-consuming, expensive burden on local elections workers. If we talked about it a lot, they're already overworked. They're dealing with personal threats themselves. They're desperate for help, and they have to sort through all these challenges, um, which then creates this downward spiral of trust. Right, Trump's lies about election theft have fueled the distrust in the election system, leading to these challenges, which sow doubt in the election system. Right? How? Do we, how, how, how do we stop it? How do we stop the madness? How do we break the cycle? Um, 
Or is the call to action here just to uh, increase scrutiny on these local elections officials and and turn out Democrats to vote for these key posts when they're super unsexy and difficult to get people to turn out for? Thoughts? Well, I, I certainly have some thoughts about this. Yeah. Look, I mean, the whole the whole push behind this Bannonism, right? Which is Leninism. And he says that you know he's a, he's an adherent of of Vladimir Lenin. Is to destroy the institution, and the only way you need the, you only need thirty percent of a committed populace to attack and undermine institutions, and over time it will fall. That's the goal. So, what is remarkable about this is that out of all of the nooks and crannies in every county throughout the country that these people have looked in, they're literally finding no evidence of of any fraud. <laughs> that that's what's so remarkable, right? When 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 so many tens of millions of people are voting in our election systems and they're not finding anything with the exception by the way of a handful of Republicans committing fraud is where they're actually finding it. And it's anecdotal. I don't want to blow that out of proportion either. But most of the anecdotal evidence they're finding of voter fraud is coming from Republicans, usually in the central committee or some Republican hierarchy that is trying to to defraud the system. So the the only way to combat that is, is unfortunately where we're at at this moment in time, in my opinion, is kind of shame and ostracization and pointing out that the people that are pushing this narrative are essentially conspiracy theorists and, uh, and people that are trying to, to undermine American democracy. You're never going to convince or persuade these people that what they're doing is not okay. It, we're just not going to. Like I'm past that point of believing that we can persuade people. If you believe taking ivermectin is going to solve your COVID problem, right? And if you believe in the big lie despite any evidence, there's no convincing you anymore. Like that, there's no persuasion in America anymore. The lines are drawn and the only way to hold truth tellers and honesty seekers in line is to combat directly and engage with it and ostracize it socially. The more time we spend trying to persuade these people and explain to them facts and science and evidence, the more we're losing time and wasting it because it's not helping at all. What it's doing is it's giving oxygen to these conspiracy theories that are hurting and harming our institutions. That's been my experience over the, since 2016. Okay, I'm still open to some other ideas, but I've never seen it work in reverse. There has to be an organized bilateral fight about this in the court of public opinion to say it's not okay to subscribe to these bad ideas and attack American democracy. So there are there there are. Look, there are things we can do at the federal level like we just talked about. Yes, there are even things that we can do at the state level. We should be doing both of those. But even those, there is no protection. There is no government protection against a growing populace that does not buy into the government's regulations about anything at some point. It's not sustainable. If you don't have the support of the people and the support of the masses and the confidence in the system, it will buckle. And it's why we need to, as people who support American democracy, as we support voting systems, as we support science and math, is to proudly and strongly articulate that and demonstrate that the majority of us buy into that. Because if we just seed that and, and, and think that by passing some legislative, you know, taking legislative action in state legislature just gonna, is going to take care of us, we're wrong. This is not a government problem. It's a social problem, and we need to treat it and fight it as such. 
Yeah, it's a cultural problem. It's a cultural problem. So this week has been sort of a recording sprint for me. Yesterday, I uh, recorded a long-form uh, interview with Rob Willer, Professor Rob Willer at Stanford. He's uh, heading up the Strengthening Democracy Challenge. And uh, it's done a ton of really interesting research. And one of the things we talked about is something the, the three of us will all be very familiar with already, which is that the degree to which elite signaling shapes uh, sort of moral judgment and political opinion uh, far more than or, you know, uh, argumentation can. Uh, elite signaling being, you know, when you have a when you have a high profile figure that's in in, in the in group, right? So, um, if we're talking politically, you've got Liz Cheney, right? Who can who can actually stand up and uh, and at least create a little bit of room for conservatives to believe that democracy is worth protecting and, hey, we should be seeking objectivity here. She's not going to persuade anybody, uh, not going to persuade everybody. But the degree to which we can encourage and and prop up more people uh, who are not just Democrats to signal to the rest of the party that there are, um, that, that there are, that there is truth worth defending here um, seems really key, but I don't know how we, I mean, it just, it feels like the incentive structures are just all wrong for that. And, and we're just likely to see more and more Liz Cheney's die off. And I, I don't know. I, I wonder, Lucy, how you think about the problem of conservatives, not, um, the trend of conservatives falling off of the radar. It's almost tautological in that the moment that you become a person who's signaling a la Liz Cheney, a la Adam Kinzinger, then your signal no longer matters to the people you're signaling to. So it you are out. Making those signals is part of how you are cast out. So there's just no signaling that keeps you in the mix among the power players. I actually think in a way the signaling itself has become problematic. And I've had arguments like this with friends who have a shtick of kind of being like, I'm still fighting for the Republican Party. Really? I'm not, because actually that kind of thing is what creates a permission structure for normal sane people to think that it's okay to stay in that boat with those nut jobs because they like low taxes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, but yeah, I yeah, I get that. But at the same time, the, you know, the we're not going to have a massive reckoning where suddenly, you know, the Republican Party is now purged itself of Trump and Trumpism. Right. Like we're so much more likely to just see a very slow evolution to move past Trump as a figure because he becomes harmful to the brand. He's more a liability than an asset. Then you have you have the new torchbearers who will use the same energy of MAGAism and Trumpism and you know to their own to their own advantage, like Ron DeSantis, who we're going to talk about in plus today. But like. We're so much more likely to see a very slow sort of glacial evolution away from Donald Trump, I think, than than any sort of really satisfying, yes, that was bad and wrong and terrible and destroyed this country. And uh, and now, you know, Republican Party should pay penance for that. I just don't think we're going to see it, Mike. I, I couldn't have said it any better that, look, w w politics is a reflection of society. A representative government, you know, in, in a in a in a democratic republic, which is what we are, we we have to look at the underlying social and cultural indicators to tell us what is going on. And America is under this moment of profound demographic change. That's going to take twenty years. It's a generational change, and we're just four or five years into this very significant change. It's why I think we're in in 
headed into a time of very high voter turnout, a a time of heightened political violence, a time of increased acrimony. And yeah, it's going to demographically have to work its way out. There's undeniably correlations between um, race and ethnicity and partisanship. There's absolutely a correlation between age and partisanship. And religion, for sure. You and I have talked extensively about this. All of these things are indicators of tribalism and of identity. And 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 in a time when when society is transforming in an unprecedented and dramatic way, we're going to look back in 20 years and say it's not surprising that things got this acrimonious because— for the first time, America is going to become a non-white Christian nation. Like we, that, that's that is that is core. It's central to American identity, and those who adhere to that are not going to suddenly be like, "Oh yeah, okay, I'll, let me just change that." I mean, a lot of people are willing to not only willing but wanting to burn it down because they view this as an invasion. There's this lack of confidence in the American idea that's far more pervasive than I thought. So I'm not trying to get you know off topic from the, from the question here or go on one of my college soliloquies here, but but it, but understanding that is really central to understanding identity as a human being, as a species. It's in us biologically, and it manifests itself politically, especially when there are so many willing politicians to throw gas and a match on it for their own political advantage. And yeah, it's not going to happen. There's not going to be like this moment. If Donald Trump is handcuffed and doing a perp walk, that's not going to change the dynamics. In fact, for a brief moment, it will make it more intense. And because we're working our way through a transformation, we're working through some demography here, guys, and it takes a generation to work it out. What I will say is, fortunately, because the 2020 election did work out the way that it did, I am more optimistic than I have been in some time. If Donald Trump had won re-election, we would be in an extremely different place right now, in a far darker, darker place. The midterms, of course, are going to be an issue, but I don't believe we are in a period where the Democrats are going to have to win forever in order to preserve American democracy. But I think it's going to be for a good run. And I'm talking 10, 15 years, right? It's because this 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 authoritarian element that is embodied in the Republican Party is going to get more intense over the years. It's going to shrink in number. It will become more marginalized until the math subsumes it, but it is not going to go away. This is not a debate about taxes. This is a debate about our actual identity as Americans, and there's few things more intense than your religion and your 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 country. And your family, which is why the Republicans are leaning into all three of those and melding them together and saying they're one and the same. And if you're not one of those, you're not any of those. So if you're not Christian, you're not American. And if you're not straight, you're you're, you're not really American. You're not really Christian. If you're not really Christian, you're not really American. And that's where these attacks come from, is they're literally tapping into the most central, emotional, impactful elements of what makes up human identity. And it's not a new story. This has been going on for for millennia here. You know, politicians, monarchs, kings, you know, soldiers, leaders have been doing this forever. And 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 it's 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 unfortunate, but it's also why I'm confident we are going to get through this. The biggest hurdle was 2020. It doesn't mean we don't have a lot of fights coming up over the next decade, but I do believe there's a demographic explanation for it, and it, it is not going to go away in one big bang. It's going to slowly 
percentage by percentage erode and drift into a different transformation of what our politics are going to be. The desperation to preserve these identity markers is superseding a faith in the electoral, in democracy, in the electoral process that we have now, in the th- in the system that allows us to have disagreements and public policy debates and everything, is the the identity desperation is superseding that commitment because why you know this is just <laughs> reminds me of a conversation I recounted in 2020 with a close family friend when I said we were having some debate and I said would you be willing to um, sacrifice democracy if you got more of what you wanted? This was like in the heat of the 2020 election. And her response was, I don't know. I'll have to think about that. And, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but like, yeah, uh, go ahead, Lucy. Yeah. And it's, I think that there, we often deal with thinking about the voter base in binary, like they must either be, they're all election deniers or they're not, right? They're like for, <laughs> for democracy or they're not. And they're actually much more like your family friend. And so that's part of how you get into a situation where good people, I'm you like doing quotes because what does that even mean? But you yeah. understand the kind of people that I'm talking about. Yeah. Sincere people. Sincere people are willing to vote for uh secretaries of state who will who will yes. uh overturn yes. elections yes. in their states if yes. they don't like the results. Yeah. Uh Republicans who they think are indecent who um, don't respect the rule of law in the way that they might think is optimal, but because they think that that is sort of like a philosophical debate that is, or or a cable news kind of get eyeballs debate that doesn't affect them and is not about their daily life. And they're right for right now. But what that fails to see is that many of the people who are in that group of people we're electing actually are authoritarians. They actually are fascist, (laughs) enthusiastic people, and they're becoming the people in power. So I, 2020 was a big test, but there are many big tests ahead because there's this danger that if people become tired of talking about the democracy issue, we will, we will continue to go down the long slide where we think, yeah, well, but I really like this person's views on you know, mm-hmm. prescription drug policy, right? I really like <laughs> what they have to say about, um, you know, helping businesses uh, operate in conditions where we can be competitive with China. But then this is what happened to the Republican Party before Trump, right? Pretty soon you actually are on a bus full of people who are going to drive the bus off the cliff. And so that's the risk. Let's turn to Russia now. There were reports of miles-long lines of Russians trying to escape being called up to fight in Ukraine on Wednesday. Moscow has reportedly set up draft offices at borders to intercept men fleeing. In the weeks since Putin announced the draft, tens of thousands of Russian men have fled the country. The Washington Post has it at 180,000, and that number reminded me of the comparable number of Ukrainians who were living abroad back when the war started, who rushed home to fight and defend their country. I think that was like over 200,000. So the contrast really stood out to me. Um, Putin said the call-up was, you know, quote unquote, partial and aimed to bring in about 300,000 men with 
past military service, but of course people are afraid it's going to be much broader and much more arbitrary than that. There are already reports of men of all ages uh, with no military training getting draft notices. Um, And this news came as Russia staged rigged referendums in four partially occupied regions in eastern and southern Ukraine as part of their plan to illegally annex uh, more of Ukraine. Russian officials and uh, their proxy leaders claimed that these referendums showed more than 95% of voters wanted to join Russia. Um, (laughs) President Biden denounced the illegal referendums and called them a sham, of course. Uh, Former President Dmitry Medvedev took to his Telegram channel on Tuesday to reiterate threats that Russia could use nuclear weapons. Uh, He said, quote, I have to remind you again, for those deaf who hear only themselves, Russia has the right to use nuclear weapons if necessary. So, Mike, um, hmm, I don't know where to start here, but uh, we've um, you know recently been uh, in touch with some of the guys we were over in Ukraine with, um, and reminded of that this began with Crimea. This will end with Crimea. Um, what do you think it's going to mean for? democracy, if Russia is able to annex such a sizable portion of Ukraine, how do you think this plays out? Well, I mean, the challenge I think at this moment is is how desperate does Putin get now? I think that's a real consideration. Look, I'm certainly no military expert and I'm no expert on uh, the Russian military. Having said that one big caveat, I think most of the Russian military ex- experts, and now I'm using air quotes, um, have been wrong about this whole consideration. I, I don't think that they have gotten it right. The old guard, kind of the cold warriors, I think they've been wrong. You know, I mean, maybe a couple things they've been right on, but 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 the threat, the way they view Russia, I think is, is from last century. It's not from this century. And I think Molly McHugh and others have been 100% right in the way our approach to Russia should be. So let me say this. If there is a change in Congress here in the United States, and my, my strong suspicion is there will be, we need to be prepared to to immediately move arms and resources to the Ukrainians quickly uh, in the interregnum. We need to we need to arm the Ukrainians, especially as we head into winter, because winter is going to change the dynamics for Russia militarily and economically. And there's a big question as to whether or not they can sustain that 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 breach between you know fall and spring. And if we lose the war or allow them to regain footing at a time when they are at their weakest, then then shame on us. That's not a military man speaking, but it's a it's a political consultant speaking, which is move on them and move on them now. Um, as as you and I have have spoken with with some of the negotiators from Zelensky's team, the belief that this started in Crimea and it will end in Crimea. Meaning this began in 2014 when Russia occupied Crimea and the Ukrainians will not stop until they get their rightful land back, I think is 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 central to Ukrainian identity and anti-Russian sentiment that exists not just in the Donbass, but throughout Ukraine. And they're serious about it. I, they are serious about it. And that this war will not end until Ukraine has complete control over Crimea. That's going to be a devastating blow to Vladimir Putin. I don't know I don't know what that exit strategy looks like but there's going to have to be a continued concerted effort at weakening all of the social institutions from the remaining oligarchs down to the average peasant in the Russian countryside opposed to this regime to destabilize Vladimir Putin's hierarchy. Now the fact that so many Russians are leaving 
is a sign that 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 something they're running out of arms. They're 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 putting untrained men, largely from ethnic regions in Russia, which is going to create more social tension, more exacerbation. Um, in front of you know cannons, cannon fodder. It's basically what they're saying is they're just going to try to throw men running down a field to overwhelm Ukrainian arms. I mean that's going to be horrible. That. We've, yeah, we've seen this we before. S- go watch. Go watch the opening scene of Enemy at the, the Gate. The, right, that movie, Enemy at the Gate. This is a, this is what they do. This right? is not a typical warfare in that part of the world, especially with the Russians. These human beings are dispensable, and and that's what we're looking at heading into a Russian winter, which is not going to be pretty um, across across the board. So, I, look. Th- I would much rather be Ukraine than Russia at this point. I'd much rather be the West than the East. But having said that, the stakes go up on the desperation of a man who does have nuclear weapons. Um, We've got to pay attention. We can't take our eye off the ball. There's a very real threat to our support with Ukraine and the strength of Ukraine if and when the Republicans take over one or both houses. It could dramatically change the trajectory of this war and change the trajectory of the West. You have people on Fox News openly uh, pro-Russia, openly speaking against the United States. You have members like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates saying we are going to introduce legislation to pull our funds from Ukraine, quit arming them, quit resourcing them. That is exactly out of Vladimir Putin's playbook. It's exactly what he needs. Frankly, it's exactly what he was investing in in the U.S. and West political systems before he before he invaded Ukraine, knowing if he could divide the West and keep them without arms, his chances of success were exponentially higher. He was right, but the West pushed back and we fought back. Uh, thank God Joe Biden was elected president of the United States because this would be an entirely different war if Donald Trump were in office. The second part of what Medvedev said after he said we can use nukes if we want is something to really hone in on, which was this form of signaling to the West, to leaders in the West and uh, around the world that we should back out of this as part of a commitment, I think, to an, an isolationist policy. It's it's basically fodder for those pundits, for the Matt Gantzes of the world. He said, you know, the security of Washington, London, and Brussels is much more important for the North Atlantic Alliance than the fate of a dying Ukraine, which no one needs. Yeah. You know, well, that that's that's dramatic language. Yeah. That's that's dramatic language. Yeah. Um, and I think is reflective of we we were talking about how there's no intellectual core of the right earlier. Well, there is right. It's called <laughs> it's called the ACU and Claremont, and they're busy hosting events with Viktor Orban, right? So, and I think that putting here at home, forcing those types of folks to be on record about the fact that they are comfortable with a Russia that is openly saying that nuclear weapons are on the table is important. Lucy, there's one other thing I want to get to here on this front. And, you know, as Mike flagged, winter is coming, right? There was, there was the Nord Stream sabotage uh, on Wednesday. Uh, European policymakers launched investigations into um, breaches of three of the major underwater natural gas pipelines uh, in the Baltic Sea. Um, they're calling the breaches sabotage. Danish authorities believe that explosions caused the massive hit uh, to these pipelines that channeled natural gas from Russia to Germany until the Kremlin cut the taps earlier this month. 
Um, that's according to the Washington Post. So a lot of people have pointed the finger at Russia, right? Obviously, since they're using energy supplies to Europe as leverage. But part of the what we, we what you both were just hitting on is the political appetite for supporting Ukraine going forward, especially as we head into some turnover here. And with winter around the corner, we're heading towards fall and winter. That um, that political appetite in Europe is going to be strained, like very, very intensely strained with the energy uncertainty uh, sort of impacting diplomacy around the war. So I wonder, um, I wonder how you're thinking about the you know the connection here between the energy crisis, um, political political support for Ukraine, and uh, and and how this plays out with the new Congress. I think Europeans are a lot tougher than Americans, and they have cultural fabric of um, much more cultural fabric of uh, collective sacrifice um, and um, uh, austerity in favor of uh, world balance, world <laughs> uh, peace, and world order that feels balanced and not um, and not authoritarian. So I actually think if you were asking me how Americans are going to fare, I'd give you a different answer. Uh, I think that Europe, I think it's hard for us to understand because we have not been tested in that way as a country here because we're across an ocean. So um, I I actually have a lot of confidence uh, that there will be a, a coming together and collective will to tough it out as needed. I do. I may be a Pollyanna. I'm. I hope so, but like they're also a hell of a lot geographically closer to yes. an expansionist Russia, right? And they got a lot more sort of physically on the line. Um, and as Mike, we learned in in Ukraine, right? Um, Putin will go around Ukraine. He will surrender. He will continue. Yeah, they, they continue know pushing that. further I, into Europe. Like they, they already know this. Brilliant answer. I, yeah. She's. I think she's yeah. exactly right. I, look, I. Um, one of the biggest warnings and admonitions to us when we were in in Kiev was, you know, we're worried that the Americans will forget about us. Um, and and that was literally when the Johnny Depp trial started. And you could hear the oxygen going out of the room. Like Americans are like, Johnny Depp? Like what's going on with the Johnny Depp divorce trial, right? Like forget freedom, <laughs> yeah. forget that's, tyranny. That's right. right? And, and and when we're driving with, with you know, young Polish people in, in taxi cabs, they're telling you stories about how members of their family all perished and died in, in World War II and how every Pole can tell that story. This is, this is that part of the world. They know what the stakes are. They know that if they don't, you know, not just sacrifice during during you know a winter and 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 have to use blankets instead of heating gas to 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 get through it. That by spring they will be arming young men and heading out to the eastern front to fight. That is their history. That is thousands of years of history. It's why they call it the Bloodlands. Is that is that is that is what they they know. The stakes are very real there. And it, uh, Lucy is exactly right. It's it's a very different calculation. For for the Europeans, especially those closer to Russia than it is uh, for for Americans who don't have any sort of frame of reference for that. So I, I mean, look, 
they do know, though, they, the, the Ukrainians do know that as much as they need Europe, Europe is largely going to be there. They will stick it out. The big fear is what happens if the Americans leave us? What happens if the Americans don't give us arms? We're not asking for troops. We're not asking for American blood to be shed in Ukraine, but give us the weapons to fight back. And if you give us the weapons, we will fight the war for the West for you. We will die for you. We will fight to preserve and protect your freedom, but don't leave us unarmed. Don't leave us outmatched because the Russians will win if we cannot fight back. Americans are shiny object squirrel in in all things, and that's actually not the just horrible insult that it sounds like because I think it's also part of how Americans have become a world power that innovates and brings the rest of the world, draws and pulls along the rest of the world into new eras and into it's many good things, right? But but it is also the the collective cultural affinity that can cause us to lose sight of the fight because of the leisure, the, the excuse me, the privilege really that we have of being across an ocean with a big landmass. You always offer up a perspective right in my blind spot. It's so it's so cool. I, oh, yeah, I, I never. I tend to think of the shiny object syndrome as just this terrible feature of uh, you know American public opinion. But you're right. It, it 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 it. There's another side to it as well. Yeah, you know the people that you know. Well, maybe yeah. maybe you are one of these people listening, and if so, I commend you. <laughs> but I often have this sense of this kind of worry in a project or anything I'm undertaking, like. Is this good enough? Is it ready? Maybe I need to spend more time preparing mm-hmm. this. I can't take this to mar- this product to market. I can't <laughs> put this piece of writing out there. And there are all these people that I come across who just, they're just like, ship, ship, ship. They're ready to ship yeah. their, like, we'll, get, we'll fix it later, right? Like, whatever. And I want to be more like those people, right? Yeah. I'm over here, yeah. like, paralyzed. Yeah. By, this is becoming, this is a therapy podcast now. Um, that's America. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That's America. <laughs> <sighs> All right, guys. Um, therapy podcast. I love it. Now that we're up to speed uh, on a few of the biggest stories this week, let's briefly turn to what you're watching. We'll head over to Politicology Plus. Mike, what do you got for us? A kind of a disturbing story out of California, San Bernardino story. This is going to be a little bit different than I normally offer. There was a, a shooting, actually. Um, a man had uh, killed his wife, was hunted down. Um, he had uh, apparently absconded uh, his 15-year-old daughter, but it turned out that she was involved in shooting at the police officers at well as well. And so I'm kind of trying to watch um, what what the storyline is that unfolds. They were ultimately both killed. They were both surrounded by police officers, but the 15-year-old was involved in in the shootout as well as her father. After her mother was shot, and again, um, I, I'm not necessarily fascinated by the disturbing, um, but I, 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 I'm always on the lookout for these different social developments that kind of tell us where things are sort of heading. And it's it is um, is clearly a disturbing story, but I think it's something that we need to continually be mindful of as as stranger and stranger things are happening in our society. So that's that's unfortunately the story I'm watching. <laughs> Lucy, so I'm. Watching a story that's not so much under the radar, but it is. There's a an aspect of this that's under the radar in the in the next day stories, which is how we're reading what is shaping up to be 
just horrible devastation in Florida from Hurricane Ian. And there is a lot of clamoring about climate change in this story, which is no doubt right. There is a climate change piece of this story. But there's also a different story about just unfettered development, um, which is the story of southwestern Florida, in particular, the city of Cape Coral, which is has in recent years been the fastest growing metropolitan area. Uh, it grew in population from like 200 in, I don't know, the 70s to uh, almost 200,000 people. This is right next, this is Fort Myers. And it's essentially swamps. It's like wetlands that were were drained and they cut canals and made canals, poured cement, whatever, so that people can have waterfront property in a place that really should not be full of houses, right? It's a complete disaster. It's a city planning nightmare. And I think it just brings up a lot about how we culturally, and of course, by the way, we are all going to bail these people out now, right? Um, in the form of, because we in America, we bail folks out, right? But but there's a, a great piece about this town. Um, it was in 2017, you can look it up. Uh, it was in Politico magazine called The Boomtown That Shouldn't Exist. And it's about just this disaster. This is written five years ago. And in that piece, they talked about how one storm could wipe this town out. And it seems like that's what's going to happen. But even in the wake of other hurricanes, people moved there and moved there and moved there. And if you look up this town on a map, you can just see all the canals that are fake. They're man-made canals cut out and just gobs and gobs of houses packed in together. It's like, of course, this is a disaster. Florida? So Florida, yeah, I I could, you know, make some kind of pro-Arizona comments now, but I'll, I'll hold that for another time. The other town that people retire to, the other state rather. But it's just an interesting piece of the conversation that I'm flagging because I think it's going to be missing because a lot of the conversation is going to be around climate and we should have that conversation around climate. But we should also have a conversation around why we have this culture around undeveloped areas of this kind of manifest destiny that every place is an appropriate place for people to go build gigantic multifamily developments without thinking about the long-term consequences of over like busting out infrastructure in paths that we know that are we know often ravaged destroyed. by hurricanes. Yeah. Yeah. So not really under the radar, but an <sighs> under the radar piece of this story that I think yeah. is worth paying attention to. All right, gang, uh, let's flip over to Politicology Plus. We're going to talk more about the political fallout from this uh, hurricane and the major leadership test for Ron DeSantis. Uh, before we do, where can everybody find you on the internet, Lucy? I'm on Twitter at Lucy M. Caldwell. Mike? Find me on Twitter at Madrid underscore Mike. And I'm on Twitter at Ron Steslow. Hello from Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And welcome back to State of the Vote. During the 2020 election, we sat down every week to discuss the national political map as voters around the country cast their ballots. We broke down the most important shift in decades and the impact it would have on the electoral map and how that shift upended campaign strategy. This year, for the midterms, we're going to break down what you need to know about the movement in the congressional races that will determine who controls the House and Senate and set the foundation for power dynamics leading up to the presidential election. 
We have partnered with our friends at Decision Desk HQ, who are among the most trusted experts in measuring and modeling public opinion and election outcomes. They are the election mathletes behind major outlets like The Economist, BuzzFeed News, Vox Media, Insider, and The New York Times for election night results and final calls on races. As my good friend Mike Madrid and I have talked about a lot on this show, the most important aspect of polls is movement. So from now through Election Day, each week the DDHQ team is going to walk us through where the biggest movement is happening, in what races, and why. And if you want to follow along, Decision Desk HQ is where you can find their House and Senate elections models, which update daily. I am joined today by two members of the DDHQ team. First, Scott Tranter. He is an investor and advisor to Decision Desk HQ and an adjunct professor at American University, where he teaches quantitative and qualitative research in the School of Communication. He's also a practitioner, meaning he's been responsible for data that drives high stakes campaign decisions. Scott, welcome back to Politicology. It's great to see you. Thanks for having me. We're also joined by Kyle Williams. Kyle was one of the lead data scientists behind Decision Desk HQ's record-setting forecasting model for Congress and the Electoral College in 2020. He also holds a PhD in theoretical physics from the University of Illinois. Kyle, thanks for making the time and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. Let's start with the environment. And no, I don't mean trees and leaves. What do we mean when we say environment, Scott? And are there any big shifts to be aware of? Yeah, so when we say environment, we say things like generic ballot, which is when pollsters ask generically, um, you know, do you support a Republican or Democratic candidate? Um, Another thing we, you know, we we modelers look at is um, approval rating of the current president in power. So that would be President Joe Biden. Um, Right now, his approval rating is underwater. Um, trend-wise, I believe, and Kyle, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe trend-wise this week he is the highest he's been probably in four or five months. He's still underwater, but still highest. Yeah, he's been trending um, upward. Yeah, I've been trending upward, so I guess a good week for him, but still underwater. But I guess from an environmental standpoint, the other, the other, I guess, minor points environment would be um, fundraising and things like that, but we, we have yet to get um, real updated numbers on that. Um, uh, one, one thing to note on the on the generic ballot stuff is especially if you, you want some 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 tips on how to read these. There's two ways in which you can do a poll. One is registered voters and one is likely voters. And oftentimes polls don't put that in the headlines. What you do is you got to go to the bottom and look at the fine print. Registered voters is basically talking to everyone who's a registered voter. Likely voters is talking to who you think is going to show up. And I always like to say this. If there are 10 registered voters in the room, without fail, usually between only four and six of them show up. And so that means is despite them being able to be registered to vote and despite them being polled, they're not going to show up and actually affect this this fall's election. So it's a long way of saying is we like the likely voter polls, especially on the generic ballot better. And, um, you know, if you look at the at the averages, the generic ballot is is still pretty good for the Republicans on the likely voter. um, And it looks better for the Democrats on the registered voter, which is historically how it's been. Okay, Kyle, while we're on the topic of environment, I think this is probably where we would put something like the strength of the historical trend of midterms favoring the party that's out of power, right? They tend to be, historically speaking, almost always a referendum on who's in the White House. Is there anything else you'd add to this environment bucket? So sort of touching off of that, if we look at the 2010 midterms, in 2010, Barack Obama was president. The Affordable Care Act at that point in time was very unpopular. Democrats were destroyed in that midterm. In 2014, Barack Obama was still the president. It wasn't quite a red wave to the extent that 2010 was, but again, you saw that Democrats 
you know, it was a not a not a good election for them. And then if you go to 2018, you sort of see the mirror inverse of that. Trump was president. Uh, it was sort of his midterm. He was quite unpopular around some of the things he and Republicans in Congress at that time were doing. If you just look at public opinion polling from that time period and Republicans were washed out of Congress at that point. So what you would expect going into an environment like like this, Joe Biden's first midterm election, is you would see okay, Democrats have a very narrow House majority. Democrats have a very narrow Senate majority. So if you just extrapolate these sort of environmental questions forward, you would probably say, well, Republicans should retake the House and they should at least be able to flip one Senate seat. And one of the interesting things I think we're seeing now, and I'm sure this is something we'll talk about at much greater length, is that while Republicans do look like they are on track to flip the House, they look like in our current forecast, probably to do so by a smaller margin than what you would expect for the party out of power to do. And it's currently a huge open question if they will even be able to flip that one Senate seat they need to reclaim the House majority. So I think that's one of the things that makes it really interesting uh, where we are right now in 2022 compared to historically what you'd expect if you just extrapolated forward. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.